This episode is presented by Wild CBD. Wild produces the best tasting edibles on the market using real fruit and all natural flavoring. With flavors inspired by the Pacific Northwest, high quality ingredients, real fruit, and consistent dosing, Wild has become one of the leading cannabis edible producers in the country. Wild's new CBD line currently offers real fruit infused gummies in blackberry, huckleberry, lemon, and raspberry, and CBD infused sparkling water in raspberry, lemon, blackberry, and blood orange. Each gummy is dosed with 25 milligrams of CBD and can be purchased in a bottle of 10 or 20. Wild CBD is offering our listeners 30% off their next purchase from wildcbd.com. That's W-Y-L-D-C-B-D.com by using the code POD. That's code P-O-D for 30% off your next purchase. Wild CBD products are intended only for the use of individuals aged 18 and older. Wild CBD products should only be consumed as directed on the label and should not be used if you are pregnant or breastfeeding. All Wild CBD products are made with ingredients containing 0% THC. Consult a health professional prior to using Wild CBD in combination with any medication or other dietary supplements. You can hear me okay? Yeah, I can hear you. Okay. Sound. Science and technology. Industry. And cold air. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah, I know what you were talking about, but in cold air, it's making me shiver. I'm sorry. It's a little cold out here. Well, I got a heater, but apparently... It only works when it's on. It's only like warm when it's on. I mean, it's still warmer in here than it is out there by quite a bit not really i'm freezing you're always free you're a woman you're always freezing it has nothing to do with me no i think it does i think it has a lot to do with my disorder no i think it has to do with women are always cold i'm gonna quote omarion here i think it was omarion who one of the guys from B2K. Okay. There's an icebox where my heart used to be. It's so cold, it's so cold, it's so cold. Well, welcome to Open a Fucking Book. I'm Kevin. <laughs> I'm Stephanie. How are you guys doing? Uh, we are on episode two, Hunter S. Thompson. I was about to say Alex Haley. <laughs> <laughs> You're a little behind. Yeah, I know. I'm tired and I'm cold. Okay. So if you remember uh, when we last left Hunter, he had done the whole uh, bag of concrete in the bar and he had met with Sandy. She was now his girl. But during this time, he was working on a little book called Prince Jellyfish. Now let's talk about Prince Jellyfish for, for just a minute. This book was Hunter's life so far he wove friends names and places from his past into the book uh the hero wellborn kemp was a combination of two friends from louisville 
that had died tragically. Uh, he was a tram transplanted wastrel in New York, adrift and floating above the struggles of other mere mortals as a jellyfish. Uh, Kemp is selfish and arrogant, and yet too charming to be firmly repellent. It was episodic and included insight into what it was like to be inside Hunter's head during a job interview. Editors would ask Kemp questions, and acid responses welled up inside until Kemp was able to spit out a more acceptable answer. Hunter wanted the fiction to turn out better than real life, so when Kemp is offered a copyboy job, he walks out. Kemp also finished college and never went to jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he was the better person. I mean. Well, that's what he wanted. He, Kemp was kind of the person he wanted to have been. He could have been that person. Yeah, but he stands in his own way of that shit. He's, a, he's his own worst enemy. And his own best friend. Because he thinks he's hilarious. Of course he does. I mean, most other people think he is thinks he is too. It's one I of the think reasons. I'm hilarious. It's one of the reasons he has so many friends is everybody kind of likes him. He's still his own worst enemy. So, but yeah, things weren't going well money wise. Uh, he wasn't working. His unemployment had ran out, and he wasn't selling any of his short stories. His landlord removed a wheel from Hunter's Jag until he paid him his back rent. Uh, so he towed the car to Ottisville to the house of a friend from the record, Anne and Fred Scholkampf. They gave him a room, food, money for riding supplies, cigarettes, and booze. Quote, If it hadn't have been for Anne and Fred, God knows what sort of dire fate I'd have come to. He stayed with them off and on for months. He hated the feeling of imposition, so he decided he needed a change of scenery to make the final push to finish his novel. That meant home. His driver's license had expired, so he hitchhiked to Louisville, closed himself off in his old room, and wrote. But before leaving New York, he had applied for a job on the San Juan Star in Puerto Rico, leaving his mother's address on his application. His friend Bob Bone, from the record, was going to work there as well. So he, he Bob Bones, hey, I'm going to Puerto Rico. Maybe you should try and get on. So just kind of, you know, as a lark, he put in an application. Yeah, on a whim. Yeah. Now, the editor of The Star was William Kennedy. No relation to the president that I know of. Uh, it was a brand new paper just starting up, and they needed a sports editor. That's what Hunter replied. Of course, he lied in the application, saying he was 24 when he was 22 and fluffing his writing credentials over what they really were. He said he wanted the job because it was in Puerto Rico and outside of the, quote, great Rotarian democracy. The publisher was a Rotarian. So there was his first misstep. You know, the, um, you know what I'm saying, the, the Rotarian, the, um, uh, the Rotary uh, the Society? I think so, yes. Yeah, that's what he's talking about. Uh, he told about kicking in the vending machine and getting fired. Quote, I have given up on American journalism. The decline of the American press has long been obvious, and my time is too valuable to waste in an effort to supply the man in the street with his daily quota of cliches. There is another 
concept of journalism. It's engraved on a bronze plaque on the southeast corner of the Times Tower in New York City. Then he added he needed to get back to work on his novel. Kennedy responded by telling him that the publisher was a member of the Rotary, and they had a staff of offbeat reporters who, like him, were writing fiction and suggested he return to his novel or perhaps start another, building his plot around the bronze plaque on the Time Tower. Quote, you should always write about something you know intimately, and if we ever get a candy machine and need someone to kick it in, we'll be in touch. You fucked up, bro. <laughs> Qu- uh, but there's a, there's a response from Hunter. Oh, he should have just left it alone. Oh, no, no, no. Hunter doesn't leave things alone. I know. And it, well, quote, your letter was cute, my friend. And your interpretation of my letter was beautifully typical of a Cretan intellect responsible for the dry rot of American press. But don't think that lack of innovation from you will keep me from getting down that way. And when I do, remind me to first kick your teeth in and then jam a bronze plaque so far into your small intestine. Oh, he's an (laughs) idiot. Uh, Now you say that. Kennedy wrote back saying that they would pay him in space rates to summarize journalism's dry rot and its failing in three double-spaced pages that they would run in their first edition, along with their exchange of correspondence, and signed it, Intestinally Yours. Hunter applied for and got the job in San Juan for a bowling magazine. He met and had dinner with Kennedy, and they became close friends. So, uh, yeah. Sometimes being completely honest and outspoken is a great thing. And and kindred spirits. Bill Bill Kennedy's... I mean, most of the people that Hunter's friends with are kind of uh, separate sides of the same coin. I mean, he's got a type. A person he gravitates to and who gravitates towards him. Yeah, I need more friends like me. Yeah. I don't know. You'd hate it. <laughs> I probably would. I love you. More of you. Don't know if I'd be able to handle more people like you. Probably not. Probably. But I can't stand people who aren't like me. But I don't think you'd be able to stand very many people like me. Like you stand, you, you, could, you could put up with me. But putting up with a few of me, I don't know if you'd be able to do that. No, I have quite a few friends that are like you. Okay. They're uh, just not as cute as you, don't have a good butt like you. And Okay. The bowling magazine didn't work out. Uh, he sold a few pieces in American papers as the Caribbean correspondent, but the cost of living in San Juan was high. So he got a hold of his friend Paul Seminen, who was the proofreader for the star, They ended up renting a small concrete bungalow for $50 a month together. The distance from Sandy ate away at him. She adored Hunter, but didn't want to limit herself. He let her know about the other women in his universe and said he expected different behavior from her. If she had these adventures, quote, have the simple goddamn decency not to write me about it. When he couldn't get a hold of her at all hours of the night or morning, he flew into a rage. At first, when he would ask her to join him, he had this do-what-you-want attitude. It soon turned into a demand. Quote, 
I want you to come down here. If you do nothing else, merely merely lie naked with me in this living room bed and stare at the sea until I get carted off for jail. By May, Sandy was in Puerto Rico, and Hunter was introducing her as his common-law wife. What? I mean, first you, you fucking jealous piece of shit. Uh, he's extremely jealous. Not, I don't have all the stories in here about his jealousy, but he's extremely jealous. But you see that most of the people who are jealous are the ones who are doing stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Right, and he told her about so it. So they feel, they have this, like, guilt. It's like, well, if I'm doing it, they must be doing it. So he's extremely jealous, and it's because of how the type of person, husband, he will end up becoming. And, yeah, they will get married. Uh, but the type of person, he, you know, husband, he ends up becoming. I'm not really jealous of anybody. I don't, I'm, uh, uh, you know, with you doing things with other people, because I'm not doing anything. I'm not expecting you to do anything. Let's You're get, a very jealous person. I'm not jealous. I'm territorial. <laughs> Let's get one thing right. Because okay. I'm jealous of no bitch. I just don't want a bitch anywhere near my stuff. Okay. Noted. Uh, now, having no success with the first novel getting published, he decided to move on taking notes for a second. So if your first one doesn't work, just write another one. Uh, the Rum Diaries. He would shape the story around his life in the shack and the roommates, the sleazy world of cheap journalism on the island, the nightlife at bars, and the inherent racial conflicts. Seminin had had enough of Puerto Rico and decided to head to the Virgin Islands. Hunter decided him and Sandy should join them. Hunter was one of the people Seminin was trying to get away from, but Go Hunter, figure. Hunter doesn't care. Now, while in St. Thomas, they hatched a plan to travel by freighter to Europe. From the Virgin Islands. Okay. They met a charter boat captain by the name of Donald Street, who had a 55-foot sailboat, and he asked if they would like to crew with him to Bermuda. Sounded good at the time. Sandy and Paul pulled their weight, but Hunter was done taking orders from people. He had had enough of that in the Air Force, so he argued with the captain the entire way. By the time the voyage ended, Sandy had had enough and returned to New York. Hunter and Paul stayed and tried to get on a freighter for Europe, but no captain would take them. Hunter had to spend his 23rd birthday marooned in Bermuda with no money. Kind of had it coming. Because it's just, they. so in the book, they get on the boat. Immediately, he's putting people to work. Because that's what, you, you can come, I will take you to Bermuda, but you got to be my crew. Okay. Immediately, Sandy and Paul start getting to work, do everything they're told. Hunter pretty much just leans back, pops open a bottle, and just enjoys the trip. And everything he's told to do, he pretty much tells the captain to fuck off. So he doesn't do a goddamn thing. And the things that he does do, it's not what he's supposed to do. It's, it, he does what he wants to do, and it's usually the wrong thing. So he's almost sabotaging the trip. It's a fucking dick. And Sandy got pissed. Sandy's like, I'm, I, I can't. So she she flies back to New York because she just can't. So now he's stuck. Now Paul's stuck with him alone. Uh, he wrote about the experience in a piece for the Royal Gazette Weekly called They Hope to Reach Spain but Are Stranded in Bermuda. Very on the nose. 
At the time, he was living in a cave on the outer reaches of Hamilton. Hunter wrote to Gene McGar, who was in Spain at the time, and asked him for $200. Gene sent the money on the condition that he send it back as soon as he could, and definitely in time for Gene's trip back to the States. He needed that money or he wouldn't be able to make it home. Gene was there as a uh, correspondent for somebody else. Uh, he'd been there for like a year. He's there with his uh, either wife or soon-to-be wife. But this is money that they need to get home. Hunter's not big about paying people back. <laughs> I'm guessing now that they didn't make it home. Yeah, it's a fun fact. Hunter was not big on paying people back. Oh, they got they got home. Uh but Hunter didn't help him. They did eventually get home, though. So Hunter used the money to get back to New York and reunite with Sandy and Paul, who also decided to say fuck it and left, and started doing freelance writer work. Now, on August 1st, Hunter appeared as a contestant on Johnny Carson's game show, Who Do You Trust? Winning $50, which is a lot What I mean... A lot of money then, fifty fifty bucks. It was one month worth of rent yeah. in San Juan. But losing the big money of three hundred dollars by being unable to identify the inventor of penicillin. One night, Hunter and Sandy decided to go see the editor of the Middletown Record and her husband at their house. Uh, the four were downstairs in the living room talking and having a good time. And later in the evening, Sandy and the husband went to the kitchen to have some drinks. The conversation apparently was all about how much she loved Hunter. Well, when they came out of the kitchen, Hunter and the editor were gone. Sandy went to her room, and Hunter was asleep in the bed. She went to get onto the mattress, and Hunter lashed out. Through their relationship already, there had been plenty of emotional abuse, but this was the first time, not the last time, that it would be physical. Quote, that should have been a wake-up call for me. But the only wake-up part of it was, be careful, be careful. Don't make this man angry, because maybe he'll leave you. And you don't want him to leave you, because this is all too exciting. Duh, bitch! We were newly in love, newly whatever, seduced by one another, and all I wanted to do was just make it right, and somehow I did. It never, ever occurred to me to get my coat, slam the door, and walk out in the middle of the night. It never, ever crossed my mind. If you were to ever lay a hand on me, I would punch you. <laughs> I'm aware. I would hurt you so fucking bad. I am aware. And I would throw you out of this house. I am aware. But again, that goes both ways. You slap me every once in a while, and what do I do? You hit me back. Exactly. If you're going to hit me, you're going to hit me. Now, I don't, I don't punch my wife in the face or anything. If she hits me in the, if she slaps me in the arm, I slap her in the arm back. It's never malicious, but don't, uh, you're not gonna, Well, you're stronger than me, and it hurts sometimes, and you bruise me. You, a flea lands on you, and you bruise, woman. Tell me I'm wrong. That's besides the <laughs> That's point. That's not beside the point. You could tap me 
softer. You don't learn your lesson if I I don't you, learn so. the lesson when you hit me. I with know. <laughs> I, stop saying I hit you. I don't hit you. You slap me. I slap you back. That's how it works. I pinch your tit. You pinch mine. Well, that's all in good fun. Okay. Now, he started real work on the Rum Diaries. He hadn't completely given up on Prince Jellyfish, which he sent to Grove Press. We all remember Grove Press from our good friend William S. Burroughs, who called it, at best, a minor novel. The Rum Diaries would be would parallel his experiences, but stray more from the strict autobiographical territory of the previous book. It gave him a chance to write about the sleaziness he found in the bowels of journalism and set the story in an exotic, though not idealized, island locale. And by the end of the summer, Hunter wanted out of the city, and he enlisted Paul as a partner in a plan to go cross-country for a Jack Kerouac on-the-road experience. They got a job driving a Ford Fairland to Seattle for its new owner, picking up hitchhikers along the way. Uh, Sandy went down to Florida to work with her mother until Hunter got settled on the West Coast. The country was in the middle of the Kennedy-Nixon presidential campaign, and Hunter witnessed a Kennedy campaign speech during a stop in Salt Lake City. In Salem, Oregon, he saw their first televised debate. This would be an important moment in Hunter's life. Quote, That was when I first understood that the world of Ike and Nixon was vulnerable, and that Nixon, along with all the rotting bullshit he stand for, stood for, might conceivably be beaten. Until that moment, it had never occurred to me that politics in America had anything to do with real human beings. Let's get one thing straight right now. Hunter S. Thompson hates Richard Nixon. Loathes him with the fire of a thousand suns. Aww. He, do you even know what you're quoting? Uh... No, kind of, no. Dances when Nixon dies. But it's all, but the rise and fall of Nixon will kind of also be the rise and fall of Hunter S. Thompson because Nixon is his muse. It's like with the Joker and Batman. If you, and it, if you see Nixon as Batman and Hunter S. Thompson as the Joker, the Joker never kills Batman. He always tries. But he's afraid to kill Batman because without Batman, what's the Joker to do? That is the the Batman is the Joker's muse. Joker doesn't give a fuck about making all the money. He just loves to create chaos to fight Batman. Hunter S. Thompson, his muse is Richard Nixon. His best work comes from writing about how much he hates Richard Nixon. So let's get that out there right now because uh, him him following around and talking about how much he hates Richard Nixon, big part of Hunter S. Thompson in the 70s and into the 80s and even the very early 90s. Okay. And the whole Republican Party, really, because he hates Reagan and Bush, too. Well, Bush won. I'm sure he probably hated Bush, too, too, but... Two two. Now, after dropping off the car, the two hitchhiked to San Francisco to meet up with an old friend, John Clancy. Now, Clancy let them use 
use up the last of the lease he had on his San Francisco apartment. Hunter spent a month trying to write in San Francisco, but it was as hard as writing in New York. Too much well-established talent. I'm not a brand new journalist isn't going to get an article into the fucking uh, San Francisco Chronicle or whatever because they have already the best writers there. So they don't need your writing. So it was time to Hunter for Hunter to move again. Paul decided to tough it out in San Francisco. He lived a full year with Hunter and needed a break. Uh, yeah. Hunter read the book The Sergeant by Dennis Murphy. No relation to you. Probably that I, not. That I know of. Maybe not. I don't know. I know. All you Murphys are probably related somehow. I, you all came over on the same potato ship from Ireland. Probably. Probably. And he loved it, so he decided to head down to Big Sur to look Murphy up. Him and John Clancy went down and actually got to meet with Murphy and played touch football with him and his ho- and his Hollywood friends. Hunter ended up living in the servant's cottage near the big house in the beginning of 1961, which had originally belonged to Murphy's grandmother. The land included an assortment of hot sulfur springs offering Pacific vistas and several shacks tossed in the woods. Hunter served as a guard for the wilderness estate. One night on the estate, Hunter and John hit a deer on the road with their car. The deer was killed, but it had a baby with it that had a broken leg. Now This, this will show you the sweeter side of Hunter. Uh, they took it back to the house, mended it, tried to nurse it back to health. It was doing well. And then a Zen Buddhist guru named Alan Watts showed up saying he could cure the deer with natural herbs. He started collecting plants and berries and fed them to the deer, went to sleep. About an hour later, stood up, cried out, went into quick spasms, and died. Hunter was outraged. Quote, that fucker, that quack, that fraud, that charlatan, I don't believe in anything that he speaks. He killed the deer. He murdered it, that rotten prick. Hunter had found a home, at least for now. He sent for Sandy. Hunter took his job as caretaker for the property seriously for a while, usually uh, chasing homosexuals from the open-air baths. That guy probably gave the deer poisonous berries. I would imagine poisonous berries well, and, and herbs, too, so God knows what type of herbs they have yeah. out there. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, he didn't know what the fuck he was doing. And Hunter was... It goes on for a little bit longer, but Hunter was pissed, like to the point where he was going to shoot him. I would have shot him. Yeah. Uh, Hunter did have a small rifle, and he paid only $35 a month in rent. Ah, the good old days. not going to say the good old days because they're pretty horrible for a lot of people. But the good old days for not having to spend a lot in in rent. Hell, I wish we could pay like $35 in mortgage. I think that $35 a month then would be a couple hundred now, probably, but that's still less than... Well, what? our mortgage is only a couple, well, it's, like it's 200. A, no, our ins- mortgage is a few hundred because taxes and insurance and everything is that. I'm not telling people how much we spend on our house. but No, altogether, it's a, a few hundred, but just the mortgage alone is only a couple hundred. Well, I don't know how much it is. I exactly. Do. Okay. Uh, a few months into the, position, into the position, Hunter and Sandy's relationship had fallen into a pattern. He would write all night, and sleep through the day, leaving Sandy to do the true t- uh, the true caretaker duties. And when he finally woke up, it would be her job 
to take care of him, too. Uh, he was still working on the rum diaries and had pretty much given up on Prince Jellyfish. It had been everywhere in New York with no takers. He thought that the rum diaries had a better chance of being printed since it was based somewhere foreign. Still, however, no takers. So he went back to journalism, even if just briefly. He pitched an article to Playboy about Big Sur. They rejected it. So he sent it to one of their more risque rivals. They accepted. Big Sur, the Garden of Agony, appeared in Rogue in the summer of 1961. Rogue is very um, Hustler-esque, from what I understand. I have not read Rogue. I read plenty of them before I met my wife. Rogue is not one of them that I have ever read. So glad you don't feel the need to read any of them now. I was in a bad marriage before. I'm in a good marriage now, so I don't need to. Now it talked. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> it talked about the free love, wild sex, the baths, orgies, and general wildness of the area. He used his friends as sources and put his observations into the mouths of a character he called, quote, the writer. Because he liked to do the be right as the editor, and now he's writing as the writer. Well, and he's 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 using. He's using himself as the first person in it, but he doesn't want to give anybody, but he doesn't, because he's got this thing when he does the first person stuff, a lot of times he uses a pseudonym or a pen name, Raoul Duke, to be exa for example. Or the editor. Or yeah, well, the, the editor writer. was the fake editor's notes, really, is the only time he did that, but now it's the writer. The article pissed off the community as Hunter had disclosed family secrets. Uh, he referred to the community as a Pandora's box of human oddities. He also talked about the homosexuals that used the baths on the Murphy's property. The owner of the estate was not pleased. The Rogue article was somewhat of a catch-22. He finally got read in a national publication, and for that, he was evicted. Go figure. It's, it's, he has no filter, and I like that about him because I like people with no filter. Because I have no filter. But his filter is different. He has no tact. No, his, his, okay, so his lack of filter, you say whatever comes to your mind just the way it comes. It's there, boom, it's out for the world. Hunter will take what comes to him, put it in a box, and then move all the words, every syllable, because many people will say this, and I don't know if I actually have any of the quotes in here, but many people will say this throughout his life, that he wrote the perfect sentences, especially when he was insulting somebody because he would stop, like he'd be typing and typing and then you'd just see him stop and he'd just sit there. And he'd sit there for 5, 10, 15 minutes and not move. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's typing again because he's thinking exactly how to put everything the best way, exactly what he wanted to say in the beginning, that doesn't change, but he puts it in the best way to make it the most elegant and hurt the most. I've done that to people. So, so he doesn't just say, oh, well, fuck you, you fucker. He will take the time to make sure that it hurts you the hardest possible. When I'm writing, that's how I do it. Okay. When I'm speaking, it's just whatever comes out. Well, he does the same thing when he's speaking. He does. Yeah. I Sometimes I have no tact, and that's when I'm speaking. When I'm writing, I have a little bit more tact than I... I I make it sound more elegant and hurt you with words yeah. in a beautiful way. 
but when I'm speaking, it's like, it depends on how angry I am, whether or not I can focus my words better. Right. But if I'm pissed off, it's like, I get kind of slum. I get kind of ghetto. I just... <laughs> Your Irish comes out. Yeah. it's I have I, I have a short fuse. Start throwing potatoes at people. Well, no, because I eat them. <laughs> Take a bite and throw them like a grenade. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, and actually, the thing with Hunter is the the more mad he gets, usually the less he curses. Like, he'll just be, ah, fuck, 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 fuck. And then when he's really mad and really upset, he really, he like, the cursing leaves. And it's more of the Kentucky gentleman comes out, and he really tries to get his point across. It's kind of weird, because the more mad I get, I just, I curse up a fucking, I mean, I curse up a fucking storm I mean, usually. you've seen anyway. some of the text messages. I've yeah. Seen, I, I take some of the curse words out and. Feels uh, like it, it feels like it makes more of a point. When if, you take if the you're cur- going, if you're going out of your way to not curse when you are angry. Yes. And it I, makes it more serious. Yeah. Even though she doesn't, she doesn't even read it. And uh, uh, mm, mm, <laughs> Okay. Oh, I'd go off on a tangent. Okay. <laughs> So he's evicted, so he once again heads to his mother's house, uh, while Sandy headed to New York. He was able to work on the book and sell a short story to Rogue, again, called Burial at Sea, which was his first publicized fiction, but they chopped out hundreds of his words, he st- uh, which you know, he didn't mind them chopping up the, the true stuff, the nonfiction, like chop that up all you want but when he wrote fiction he did everything methodically he wanted everything in there so when they chopped that up it really kind of pissed him off oh, like I bet. don't you could you can do whatever you want with the non-fiction but with the fiction stuff that's coming straight from my head you leave that the fuck alone and that's going to be an ongoing th- thing with him he gets really pissed off at a lot of people that are really close to him because they want to change his story i get pissed off with any editor, uh, any author should get pissed off at an editor. Well, I mean, some editors are there to make your I mean, like look back at our Harper Lee uh, series. She had she had her editor before her editor touched it. Kill a Mockingbird was just a bunch of fucking jumbled words, just just, just ideas, and she turned it into the masterpiece that it is. So an editor is there to help you. Hunter didn't want a lot of nitpicking on his writing. He wanted to write it. He just wanted you to look at it and tell him it was okay. Or tell him where he was fucking up, what part of it was fucked up, and what you thought needed changed, and then he would go in and see the best way to change it, not you change it for him. Right. He wants to do the changing. He wants to have that. Okay. Now, he he went to his mother's. And he stayed for the holidays, but he was back in New York with Sandy by January. He finished up the book there in the spring, but had lost all hope in it. Uh, they sold most of their possessions and slept on a mattress on the floor of a shabby apartment. We've all been there. Uh, while Sandy was working at a travel agency by day, Hunter would sleep, get up in the late afternoon, write, then go out and drink. It was during this time that Sandy really started to realize that Hunter would never truly be a one-woman man. Sandy even found a letter he had written to another woman asking her to go with him to South America 
instead of Sandy. You see, Mimo, you remember Mimo? Mm-hmm. Mimo had died and left him $15,000. It's a lot of money in the early 60s. So he bought a camera and booked passage to South America in hopes of becoming a foreign correspondent. And on April 24th, he left. Hunter had sent a letter to the editor of the National Observer, a newspaper that was an offshoot of the Wall Street Journal. Before they could agree or disagree to Hunter's proposal, he had already sent them his first story. Uh, I think that's a pretty good way to do it. Hey, you guys want to, you want me to maybe write something for you? I already did, by the way. Here you go. So if you want it, there it is. I mean, it's not a bad way to do it. Yeah. If you're freelancing. Uh, The top editor, Bill Giles, liked it and became Hunter's biggest supporter. They gave him a contract for six pieces at $1,000 a piece. He also sold to other papers across the country. He would send the pieces to Sandy, who would type them up, sometimes as many as 10 copies of the same story. They didn't have Xerox machines then, so you had to do it by hand. And then she would send them out to various outlets. He started in Puerto Rico, paid smugglers $40 for a ride to Colombia, then Aruba, Peru, Ecuador, Bolivia, Uruguay, and finally, Brazil. His first major piece was based on his ride with the smugglers called A Footloose American in a Smuggler's Den. He was the central character of the story, of course. In May of 63, he met up with Bob Bone in Rio. The story goes is that when he showed up, he had a drunk monkey in his pocket. <laughs> I want a drunk monkey. Now, he had apparently met someone in a bar who would buy him a drink only if he could buy the monkey a drink at the same time. And like all Hunter S. Thompson stories, it doesn't re- exactly have a happy ending. The monkey letter later leapt from the balcony of a 10th floor apartment committing suicide. Uh... So, yeah. I'm going to cry. Don't cry. Now, with every story sent to the Observer, along came a Hunter letter for Clifford Ridley, one of the higher-ups at the paper. The stories were to be published, and the letters were only for Ridley. In these letters, Hunter's gonzo style of writing was starting to come through. Where getting the story was the story. He wrote about Brazilian soldiers opening fire on a club, Brazilian's Uh, Brazil's post-election trauma, Bolivia's economic condition, the history of the Incas, showing his versatility to cover a wide range of subjects in his own hunter way. He was one of the pioneers of a movement being called New Journalism. While in Rio, Hunter became friends with Charles Kuralt, Latin American bureau chief for CBS News. Another friend for life. That's another thing with, uh, with Hunter. You're either a friend for life or you guys aren't friends for long. But during Hunter's stay in Rio, he was arrested for shooting rats at the city dump with a 357 mag. He charmed the cops, who dropped the charges since he had ditched the gun and there was no proof he had actually shot the rats. <clears throat> On the verge of release, Hunter leaned back in his chair and put his feet up on desk and the bullets, the gun slipped out of his pocket and landed on the floor. God, what a fucking idiot. (laughs) It took intervention by the U.S. Embassy to get him out of jail. It is to be noted that Hunter 
did use drugs at this time. Now, mostly weed and pills. No coke, though. Not yet. And while Hunter was gone, Sandy turned to something, too. Speed. She probably had to keep up with all that typing. Uh, she was fairly depressed. Um, you're going to find out that she had been pregnant a couple times and had to have abortions because she knew that if she kept the baby, Hunter would be gone and she'd be on her own. So, you know, and uh, that led to depression, speed. Um, she was, uh, while he was gone, she was a friend of a friend of hers came to her and she got on a motorcycle with him and they went driving around and they were in a wreck and she got hurt and Hunter was fucking pissed off at it and threw a fit telling her that they were breaking up and she started taking uh, even more speed and she, she became a druggie and she becomes a pretty hard alcoholic uh, for a lot of the time they're together. She eventually gets over it um, and, and is in recovery, but that's after uh, well, you'll find out. Now, Hunter decided it was time to go home. Sandy had flown down to see Hunter's family when they received a telegram that Hunter, Hunter was in the States and headed towards Louisville. It made Virginia very nervous when he came to town. Some of Hunter's friends went to the house and asked them if they would like to go ride some of their horses. Now, this was before Hunter got there. Sandy loved horses and jumped at the chance. What they didn't tell her is that these were newer polo ponies. I'm not sure what exactly the uh, significance of that is, but I guess they uh, don't ride the same way as a regular just riding horse does. She was on it all of five minutes before it bucked her off. She landed hard on her shoulder, dislocating it. Hunter arrived into town and went straight to the hospital. He was less than happy, but still relieved to see her. They broke his mother's bed having sex. <laughs> well, she had a dislocated shoulder. Nice. Yeah. Uh, the next, yeah, full, full sling and everything. So the next day, Hunter gathered his family and called up to Sandy to get ready and get in the car. They're going to Indiana. When she asked why, he, he told her, quote, to get married. You couldn't get a quickie marriage in Kentucky. You could in Indiana. They had to get their blood tested and wait overnight, I guess, to make sure that you weren't drunk or high, that you were making this decision of your own volition and not, you know, doing something stupid like you would do in Vegas. The, the next day, they went to a courthouse. Sandy said in an interview, quote, I've got my arm in a sling and I'm wearing Hunter's big sweater and the justice of the peace starts reading the thing, you know, sacred stuff. And he looked over at me and said, what happened to your arm? I said, I fell off a horse. He said, you fell off a house? I said, no, a horse. He says, oh, okay, you're married. That was May 20th, 1963. <laughs> <laughs> so if you have a marriage story, Sandy can probably top it. Uh, then they went down to Florida to see Sandy's parents. According to Sandy, her mother loved Hunter. He was not terribly fond of her himself. But one thing was amicable. Both Hunter and Sandy's father hated each other. That didn't keep Hunter from accepting their wedding present, present a rambler. 
So Hunter decided that their honeymoon would be a cross-country one from Florida to Las Vegas. Before they left, he was able to get a few more articles written for the Observer, including When the Thumb Was a Ticket to Adventure on the Highway, where he brags about holding the record for hitchhiking in Bermuda shorts. <laughs> Hunter, Sandy, and their Doverman, Agar, traveled out west so Hunter could cover the Liston-Patterson heavyweight boxing match on July 22nd. I don't talk about the Dovermans much, but... He is a lover of Doverman Pinchers, and he has them pretty much his entire adult life. So I'm not going to really bring up the Dovermans too much, but just know that whenever you're picturing Hunter in his home, there's usually a Doverman there too, or two. And when he gets to the farm, when he finally owns his, his farm, there's peacocks and all types of animals. He's an animal lover. I mean, I think I could top her wedding story. I got my atheist atheist husband to get married in a church yeah that yeah, i don't think that the the marriage story that would top hers is the fact that your husband kept pestering you to fucking come on we're running late because <laughs> you did not want to get ready i was getting ready i had to get my daughter ready no, you stood around and talked to your family for a long time i me all my boys my brother everybody on the groom side was completely ready and to go before you were even getting dressed. Because I had to do my dog. No, because you wouldn't shut the fuck up and stop talking to your family. <sighs> now, Hunter never wrote the story about the Liston-Patterson heavyweight boxing match, nor would it be the last time he was contracted to cover a fight and didn't deliver. This match is a smaller one. The next one he's supposed to cover, much bigger but I don't think we get to that until the next episode. Maybe this one, but I don't think so. Now, Paul Seminen had gone to Aspen, Colorado, invited them to come visit. They ended up staying for two months before renting a ranch house about 15 miles from him in the village of Woody Creek. They absolutely loved it in Aspen. Quote, Christ, my life, my life is genuine pleasure for the first time since I left Big Sur nearly two years ago. I have a dog, a woman, guns, whiskey, plenty of time to work, and a garbage disposal. <laughs> Sandy was soon pregnant. She was pregnant a couple times before. Like I said, she had had abortions. Uh, they weren't ready then. But now they were in a place they loved, and Hunter had better prospects for work. So she kept the thing. There was one problem, though. The rent was going up in December, and they didn't want to leave. Hunter needed to work more. November 22, 1963, President Kennedy was assassinated, and Hunter decided to go into Aspen to get some sense of people's reaction. Angered by what he found, nothing. He wrote to Seminen and William Kennedy, quote, I am trying to compose a reaction to the heinous, stinking, shit-filled thing that happened today. Now, President Johnson? Jesus motherfuck. Where do we go from here? He was not a fan of Lyndon B. Johnson either. He still wrote some pieces for The Observer and also started doing book reviews. He wrote about leftover beatniks, frustrated miners, deer hunters, and Indian right activists. But his best pieces were always the one that meant something to him personally. 
He was a longtime admirer of Ernest Hemingway, and he took the trip to Ketchum, to Ketchum Idaho, to Hemingway's home. Part travelogue, part literary criticism, he wrote about his childhood literary hero. Quote, Perhaps he found what he came here for, but the odds are huge that he didn't. He was an old, sick, and very troubled man, and the illusion of peace and contentment was not enough for him, not even when his friends came up from Cuba and played bullfight with him in the tram. So, finally, and for what he must have thought the best reasons, he ended it with a shotgun. He walked through the house and stole a huge set of elk horns from above the entrance to the home. He kept the horns for the rest of his life, not the only thing he would steal that he would keep forever. He saw the horns as a statement piece. Quote, forget running with the bulls or reeling in marlins or slaughtering rhinos. I had Hemingway's horns. And with that came the immense literary responsibility. It was now fuck you to the competition. I had broken from the pack and there was no turning back. So he goes to Hemingway's house and steals... You could see, I guess, pictures from Hemingway's home when he was getting older of these elk horns that he had above his doorway. Hunter S. Thompson stole them. <laughs> Dude's got balls. Well, he's got horns. Well, <laughs> that too. Now, unfortunately, Hunter and Sandy had to give up the house in Woody Creek. Sandy, eight months pregnant, they moved to Glen Ellen, California. It made sense for work to be closer to San Francisco. They moved to what he called a shack because the original house they had planned on renting's landlord backed out of the deal at the last minute. He called this shack the Owl House. They made friends with local orthopedic surgeon Bob Geiger. And when the new landlord began talking about evicting them, the Geigers took the Thompsons in as guests. The landlord had, had just cause. Him and Bob were out at four in the morning shooting shooting gophers in the backyard of the house they were renting, and the landlord didn't take too kindly. At some point, himself and the graphic artist Tom Benton decided to send off for $5 each for their Doctor of Divinity degree. Quote, this is great because you can get cut rates on hotels, and, you know, it always sounds good in an airport when you hear paging Dr. Thompson. He even tried to perform a marriage ceremony once. He had this uh, electrotherapeutic machine that when you turned it on, blue flame would come shooting up from the tube, and if you got close to your skin, it would arc across. Apparently, he was waving it at the couple, and he got the thing too close to her nose, and the current leapt across, and leapt across to her and scared the hell out of her. He told Tom Benton, quote, I'll make a deal with you. You do all the weddings, and I'll do all the funerals. <laughs> but from then on, friends would call him the good doctor, frequently calling Bob's office so he could leave the message that Dr. Thompson was calling. <laughs> now, on March 23rd, 1964, about 6 in the morning, Sandy's water broke. They rushed to, they rushed to Santa Rosa Hospital, and after, by all accounts, a very easy delivery, the doctor said she could have had the baby in a field, Juan Fitzgerald Thompson was born. They would not be mom and dad, but Sandy and Hunter to the child, 
By the end of the summer, they would be living in San Francisco in a $100 a month apartment near 49ers Stadium. Now, during this time, Hunter started to get more political. He went to the RNC in San Francisco when Senator Barry Goldwater was in the lead for the candidacy. He was on the convention floor for the Observer, feeling afraid because he was the only one not applauding and stamping his feet in approval. Other members of the Observer staff were there as well, and Hunter got very drunk, so drunk, in fact, that the editors sent a letter of reprimand. If he was going to represent the newspaper, he had to get his act together. The relationship with the Observer was becoming strained. He needed money. He tried driving a cab, but was fired. Tried handing out flyers for grocery stores and donating blood. The Observer wouldn't accept his writing on the Berkeley free speech movement. They saw it as a bunch of spoiled rich kids throwing tantrums, but Hunter knew that there was something more there. Hunter pondered whether to get involved in activism. He got the Observer to pay for a trip for him and his family to take a train to Louisville over Christmas by saying it was for a story about train travel. The story was funny but ultimately unusable and subsequently ended his relationship with the Observer. Cliff Ridley soon after took an angry call from Hunter. According to the Observer staffer Dan Green, quote, Cliff abruptly hangs up, grimly strides over to my desk, inhales through his trademark cigarette holder, dramatically clears his throat, and then declares in a deep theatrical baritone, I believe Hunter Thompson just called me a pig fucker. (laughs) (laughs) He was at a real low point. Now, through a series of events, Hunter ended up meeting Carrie McWilliams, editor of The Nation. He told Hunter he liked the stuff he did with The Observer and wanted to know if he wanted to do anything for The Nation. Hunter jumped at the chance. This was finally a chance to talk about things he really cared about in a way he wanted to. He tried to keep things a little more conservative as much as he could for the Observer. With the nation, he could say what he was really thinking. They agreed to the Berkeley story and published his account in late summer of 1965, but McWilliams wanted something a little more and suggested that Hunter look into the story of an outlaw motorcycle gang. Today's episode is brought to you by our brand new exclusive discount code for thebeardstruggle.com. Ladies, you know that man in your life with the big, beautiful beard? Or the one trying to grow a beard, even if it's just a little stubble? Well, what you might not know is that the skin underneath all that face fur can get dried out and super itchy, causing scratching that leads to flaking, and if there's anything worse than head dandruff, it's beard dandruff. That's why we've teamed up with thebeardstruggle.com. They know what goes into having a big, glorious beard, hence the name. And they've created some of the best products in the market to help the man in your life tame those majestic chin locks and soothe the skin underneath. Be it the day and night oils, which keep the beard soft and the skin moisturized, and they smell great, by the way, or the beard straightener that calms those extra curly face hairs and makes that beard look fuller and healthier. Kevin uses these products, and his beard has never looked, felt, or smelled better than 
I, I really enjoy playing with the jade now. Beardstruggle.com uses 100% all natural ingredients. They never test on animals and have a 90 day money back guarantee. All you have to do is go to thebeardstruggle.com, all one word, or click on the link in the show notes. And don't forget to use our exclusive discount code AUDIO15 for 15% off at checkout. That's A U D I O 15 for 15% off your entire order. Go now. A story that would change his life. Now, Hunter looked into the stories that were out at the time, and it turned out that no one had ever spoke to the members of the gang. All the stories came from the cops. So Hunter immediately made connections with the Hell's Angels. Okay, let's get one thing right. They're not a gang. They are a motorcycle club. Oh, they are a gang. It's this a... is not Sons of Anarchy. They are a gang. Oh, I've never watched Sons of Anarchy. Okay. They're uh, a club. Your mom did. Tina? Oh. Yeah, I know yeah. she was. <laughs> and my dad. Well, your mom especially, because she got a big cutout of uh, uh, Charlie, uh, what's his fucking name? Hunnam. 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 Something like that. Hunnam. Yeah, she, yeah. 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 <laughs> so the San Francisco Chronicle reporter, uh, Bernie Jarvis, had once been a member, not Barney, Bern, and not Bernie, like Bernie, Bernie, B-I-R-N-E-Y. Yeah, it's a weird name. Uh, probably one of the reasons he joined the Hells Angels, because he probably got beaten up a lot as a kid, because his name Bernie Jarvis. But, hey, whatever. He had once been a member, a member and offered to introduce him to the gang. They met at the DePaul Hotel Bar around midnight on March 26th. Quote, look, you guys don't know me. I don't know you. I heard some bad things about you. Are they true? They liked Hunter from the start. He had the balls to talk to them face to face. They bonded over booze. They closed the bars down, and Hunter invited them back to his house. Uh, you roll your eyes, but they drank and talked. But by all accounts from Hunter and Sandy, they were very respectable and even played with Juan. So, I mean, they're not these evil guys. They just want to go out and have fun. If they're in the position where they're, where you know, they're around, you know, wife and kids, apparently, well, at least this group was very respectable. That's why they're a club and not a gang. Okay. Within a week, Hunter was regularly staying up all night with the Angels getting enough material for five stories. A couple days in, he met the president of the Oakland chapter of the Hells Angels, Sonny Barger. They weren't friends, but there was a mutual respect, which is probably more important. The two spent a lot of time together for the piece. Hunter would act tough, shooting his guns out the window and things like that. Uh, there's one where he, uh, there's one story where he takes off his his boot and throws it through a plate, uh, one of their glass windows at their house, and starts shooting guns out of it to, you know, impress the uh, the Hell's Angels. The motorcycle gangs, losers and outsiders, appeared in the nation on May seventeenth, nineteen sixty-five. It was different than anything that had been written about the Angels before. Quote: The difference between the Hell's Angels in the paper and the Hell's Angels for real is enough to make a man wonder what newsprint is for. Within a week of the article's appearance, he had seven different book offers. He signed with Ballantine Books, a paperback imprint of Random House, 
for a $1,500 advance. He paid two months advance in rent and started looking for motorcycles. <laughs> he needed a bike if he was going to run with the Angels. Now, they only rode Harleys. It's kind of a thing. Hunter bought a BSA 650 Lightning. Hunter knew if he was going to write the story, he needed to be a part of it. So he got in contact with them again, telling them he needed to spend more time with them for the book. Well, they were fine with it. They enjoyed the piece Hunter wrote. It wasn't always flattering, but it was honest, and that is what they cared about. In a sort of joking way, but not really, they said the cost of hanging with them and writing their story would be a keg of beer. A payment they would never receive. However, they let him know that if he wasn't going to get a Harley, he couldn't ride with them. So he was fine with it. He didn't want to be one of them, just wanted to be around them. So when they rode, he followed in his 1959 Rambler Custom. So they rode their bikes. He just followed behind them in his car. <laughs> now, no one would think to put Hell's Angels and hippies in the same city together, let alone the same party. But Hunter was instrumental in bringing them together. Now, Hunter admired Ken Kessie, author of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Kessie was the leader of a group in La Honda calling themselves the Merry Pranksters, and they were the original hippies. They ate LSD like popcorn at the movies. One day, Kessie went with Hunter to an Angels meetup. The Angels don't usually like outsiders, but Kessie was big, burly, a former athlete, had confidence. The Angels liked him right away. He stuck around for a while, talking and drinking, inviting them to his home for a party. On the first weekend of August 1965, at his La Honda compound, he strung up a banner across the entrance saying, The Merry Pranksters Welcome the Hell's Angels. Hunter was sure it would end up being a bloodbath. But when 40 or 50 Hell's Angels rolled in on their Harleys, the hippies welcomed them with open arms and hands full of LSD. And Hunter thought, quote, Great creeping Jesus, what's going to happen now? His friends warned him that acid would bring out his most violent tendencies, but he saw the angels taking it, and they were much more violent than him. So Hunter figured the only thing was to get, quote, as fucked up as possible. He took... 800 milligrams, and the dose, quote, almost blew my head off, but in a very fine way. Oh, God, he's going to become addicted to LSD, isn't he? Uh, <clears throat> beginning Hunter's love affair with acid. <laughs> <laughs> the party went off really without a hitch, if you don't account, account for the gang rape. <laughs> I gotta stop saying stuff like that when you've just taken a drink of tea because <laughs> she almost spit it out all over my equipment again <laughs> apparently a young blonde woman said she would sexually accommodate three of the angels uh, she got started and then an audience showed up and everyone wanted a turn it was not her plan to be ran train on so when her ex-husband came to join in she let him know that she wanted to stop, and he put a stop to it. She's like, just kiss me, 
so nobody else will put anything in my mouth. So he does. Everybody starts cheering. He's like, guys, I think, I don't think she wants to do that. I think she's done. And they're like, oh, okay. They didn't continue. They're like, okay, if she wants to stop, we'll stop. Okay, whatever. Okay. So. Good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, It was getting to the point that Hunter was becoming somewhat of a secretary for the Angels. If you want to get a hold of the Angels, call Hunter. Playboy wanted an article, as did the Stanford Literary Review. He shot off a few articles, but the book was the main focus. After about six months with the Angels, he was starting to worry about hitting his deadline. He thought that if he was late, he would have to return the advance. Now, reading uh, about Douglas Adams and Alex Haley, we both we all know that is not the case. They just give you more time and possibly, in Alex Haley's position, more money. Uh, but he didn't realize that, and this is the 60s. So he went to a motel with his typewriter, whiskey, a bunch of pills, and stayed awake for 100 hours straight, finishing the rest of the book in four days, making his March 1st deadline. Hunter tries to come off like he's tough and ready for anything as the Angels, but on a run to Bass Lake, they all stopped off at a store for some booze. It's a little bit longer story than that, but essentially they end up stopping at a store to get some booze. The Angels end up getting into it pretty heavy, with the local cops. And according to Sonny Barger, Hunter jumped in the trunk of his car and hit out until it was over. Chicken shit. Now that wasn't in the book. He he dedicated it to, quote, to my friends who lent me money and kept me mercifully unemployed. No writer can function without them. Well, at least he acknowledged his friends. Yeah, he's got no problem acknowledging his friends. He's not uh, He's not like some of the... But he's not going to pay them back. No. <laughs> He'll give a thank you. No payback. No, I'm sorry. Those you won't get. He'll, he'll, he'll roundabout apologize, but he'll never actually say the words, I am sorry. You just don't get that from Hunter Thompson. Now, there are a few different stories in how the relationship with the Angels ended. Uh... How do you think it ended? Poorly? Probably. Okay. That's this Hunter S. Thompson. Hunter said once that he took the cover of the book to the Angels and they saw the $4.95 price. They wanted to know how much of that they would see. Hunter said, quote, come on, takes a long time to write a book. Nothing. That's your share. Another story was that a fight started over Hunter preaching the superiority of his BSA over the Harleys. But according to Sonny Barger, one of the angels named Junkie George got into an argument with his old lady and slapped her. George's dog bit him, so he kicked the dog. Hunter walked up to George and said, quote, Only punks slap their old ladies and kick dogs. George beat him up for a few seconds, and then the angel stopped it. Sonny picked him up, told him to go. He got in his car and drove off. He went to the police station, and they told him, quote, get the fuck out of here, you're bleeding in our jail. <laughs> Wait, he hit, he hit his own wife. Well, yeah, but this is, yeah, yeah, but that's him. He doesn't want to see other people do it. I think what really got him was the kicking of the dog. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It took four days of bed rest to fully recover. 
Afterwards, he wrote the ending of the book as him being beaten almost to death by the Hells Angels. Uh. 30 years later, Hunter would hear about Sonny being upset that they never got their keg of beer. Hunter offered to buy them one. Quote, it's 30 years too late. The book was met with overwhelmingly good reviews. Random House under-anticipated the demand, printing only 20,000 copies. It quickly sold out. Several times, Hunter went to book signings with no books to sign. Now, this was when he started changing his appearance. Gone were the slacks and wingtips. Now it was shorts, tropical shirt, a hat, sunglasses with a cigarette holder. It was starting to become more about the image and persona, and that started to shape his writing. The drugs helped, too. One night at a birthday party, Hunter ran into his friend Jack Taibu. Hunter was whacked, out, was whacked out on something. Quote, these drugs could knock down an elephant. I'm either high or I'm low. I can't tell which, where, which, when, or how I feel, you know? Jack needed a ride home, so Hunter gave him one on his BSA. He made Jack wear his helmet, which is a good idea. The roads were slick, and Hunter was going about 80 when he turned a corner and had to stop suddenly at a red light. The bike went end over end. Jack had a compound fracture in his leg, and Hunter had a huge gash in his forehead. Pretty nasty concussion. Police arrived, and Hunter pulled out his Bowie knife. Quote, All right, you've been tracking me for months now, you cocksuckers. It's about time we got it on. I'm sick and tired of it. The police got the knife away from him, and then they both went to the hospital. Hunter gave them an expired Blue Cross card and said he would pay for everything, then disappeared. They got a call about 10 minutes later from a bowling alley saying there was some guy bleeding all over the place, pounding his fist on the bar, demanding a beer. <laughs> Hunter met with Jim Sil Silberman, not Silverman, Silberman, an editor at Random House, to produce a contract to rewrite the Rum Diaries and produce another nonfiction work. During the meeting, Hunter ordered... 19 whiskeys. Silverman wanted to recapture the lightning that was Hell's Angels. He thought of maybe sending Hunter to live with the banditos in Mexico or mercenaries in Africa, but Hunter knew that you couldn't recreate the past. The final agreed-upon contract for the book was the least specific. Hunter would write some narrative on the topic of the death of the American dream. It was a book contract, something he always wanted, and something he would regret soon after. And by late fall 1966, Hunter and his family moved back to Colorado. One of Hunter's first acts upon moving to Colorado was serving as best man at his old friend Billy Noonan's wedding. Whole thing went off without any major incident, with the exception of Hunter putting his cigarette out in the holy water. <laughs> they ended up in a rental house in Woody Creek. He began calling Al Farm. George Stranahan was Hunter's neighbor there. Sandy had called him and his wife and asked them over for dinner. When they came over, they drove their Jeep. When Hunter met them for the first time, he said, quote, Oh, good, you've got a Jeep. We've got to go down and pull my motorcycle out of the creek. <laughs> that was Hunter's first words to his new neighbors. Then they went, pulled the bike out of the creek. Billy and his wife, Ann, moved into the cabin next door. So now... Sandy had a friend to talk to. 
Hunter and his friends began stealing things to furnish their home. The home was a three-level house, small cabin nearby, a stable with acreage resting on top of a bluff. It was his refuge and the last home he would have ever known. Now, Sandy was able to go out to lunch and shop when they had money, but she would always be home by 3 p.m. That's when Hunter usually got up. From then until when he either left the house or went to sleep, maybe days later, her life revolved around him. She had to have his very elaborate breakfasts, eggs, grapefruit, always grapefruits, toast, Bloody Marys, about six cups of coffee, and awaiting beers, and tend to his every need. Sandy was pregnant at the time and ended up having a miscarriage. She had already had a couple before. Sandy took several months to cope. Because of Sandy's condition, he refused to leave Al Farm for too long. Turning down most freelance work, he wrote a hippie piece for the New York Times, which was a hit, an article on the Angels for Playboy that never got published, but he got paid for anyways, and Esquire ran an excerpt from the Angels book. Hunter finally had to be a full-time parent at this time, and he was much different than Sandy. He was loose with discipline and played jokes on Juan. Juan would tell guests, quote, Hunter says my name is Dirtbag. And Hunter's friends would play along. He once told his son to bring him his cigarettes or he'd, quote, rip his balls off. He later found Juan crying in his room because no cigarettes were brought. He also had a taser stick that he would chase Juan around with yard with. He never hurt him, but he would get Juan running. What a horrible father. Uh, eh, different father. In 1967, he signed a new agent, Lynn Nesbitt, put off magazine articles, and just genuinely didn't work much. That summer, he met new friend Oscar Zeta Acosta, an attorney visiting from L.A. Acosta, known as the Brown Buffalo, was in his early 30s and had just lost his campaign for sheriff in L.A. County. He lost by a million votes. He had a huge appetite for booed, booze, and drugs. Him and Hunter became close. Hunter saw Acosta as the embodiment of menace and articulate rage, a, quote, dangerous thug with a head full of Sandoz acid, a loaded 357 Magnum in his belt, a hatchet-wielding bodyguard at his elbow at all times, and a disconcerting habit of projectile-vomiting geysers of pure red blood off the front porch every 30 or 40 minutes, or whenever his malignant ulcer can't handle any more raw tequila. Goddamn. <laughs> he thought more about the American dream. What was it? Was it a rags to riches, a dream of freedom? Whatever the dream turned out to be, he knew it would be political. In 1968, he vowed to register to vote again just so he could vote against President Johnson to protest the Vietnam War. But the alternative was Nixon. He saw Nixon as the devil incarnate. He decided that maybe he would find the American dream by covering the 1968 presidential campaign from start to finish. And a senator from Minnesota, Eugene McCarthy, announced that he would be challenging the president for a party's nomination. Hunter wrote to McCarthy, sent him a copy of Hell's Angels, and offered to help as a speechwriter. He ended up not working directly for the McCarthy campaign, but he did use his Random House contract to get credentialed as a political reporter 
and use an assignment from Paget in February of 1898 to get close to Nixon during the New Hampshire primary. Hunter ended up joining a small pack of journalists trailing the candidates and even made some friends with other reporters. He smoked a joint in the back of Nixon's press bus with Bill Cardoso from the Boston Globe. <laughs> now, like I said before, Hunter hated Nixon. He saw him as a vile thing that made American politics already a dirty pond that much more filthy. He even questioned, after Nixon won the presidency, if he was actually human. Hunter was really pulling for Bobby Kennedy to win the Democratic nomination after Johnson ended up bowing out of the race, so he could again root for another Kennedy to wipe the floor with Nixon. Quote, All I really want to do is get that evil pig fucker out of the White House and not let Nixon in. Nixon is a monument to all the bad genes and broken chromosomes that have queered the reality of the American dream. The two only met face to face once. Nixon had been giving campaign speeches all day and wanted to talk to someone about football. They went to Hunter since he was the only expert on the bus. They told him football and only football, no politics, no Vietnam, no campus riots, or he'd be hitchhiking back to New York. So they sat in Nixon's limo and talked football. Hunter was impressed. When Hunter described a pass play in the 1967 Oakland Green Bay Super Bowl, Nixon remembered not only who caught the ball, but also where he played college. Quote, I've never seen him like that before or since. We had a good, loose talk. That was the only time in 20 years of listening to the treacherous bastard that I knew he wasn't lying. Though he was stunned by Nixon's geekish knowledge of pro football, he still despised the man and said traveling with him was, quote, a nightmare of bullshit, intrigue, and suspicion. Hunter's Nixon article was a slightly cleaned up version of what he'd been writing to friends and associates. Pageant wouldn't let him use the word pig fucker. He called Nixon, quote, a foul caricature of himself, a man with no soul, no inner convictions, with the integrity of a hyena, and the style of a poisoned toad. With all the hate that Hunter had for Nixon, Nixon was Hunter's muse. He gave him the drive to write some of his best work in his life. Pageant cut 15 pages from the manuscript. He insisted they remove his name from the piece. The magazine refused. He hated his works being cut. He put thought into what he said and how he said it, and when the editor started slashing his words, he took it quite personally. Hunter was watching the Kennedy's was watching Kennedy's California primary victory speech at Woody Creek. He left the room and heard a friend scream from the living room. He ran back into the room to learn of Kennedy's assassination. The death had been televised and Hunter wasn't in the room to see it. It wouldn't be the last time he missed the climax of a story simply because he wasn't where he should be. So this is going to be something that we have talked about in two separate series already. He got Random House to give him press credentials so he could cover the Democratic Convention in Chicago that August. You re- yes. yes. Harper Lee. Yeah, we remember talking about Harper Lee and William S. Burroughs. Yes. Yes. Quote, a presidential campaign would be a good place, I thought, 
to look for the death of the American dream. When Chicago Chicago came around, my head had gotten into politics, and I thought, well, if we're going to have a real bastard up there, I might as well go. Well, we should all remember what happened in Chicago, and Hunter wasn't immune to it. But he wasn't as lucky as Burroughs to get to his hotel room before the cops had a chance to get to him. Hunter was down in the middle of it. Hunter said, quote, I was treated as brutally as all the other press people. I was cursed, pushed, chased, punched in the stomach with Billy Club, the whole gig. I went to the Democratic National Convention as a journalist and returned a raving beast. It prematurely altered my brain chemistry. There was no possibility for any personal truce for me in a nation that could hatch and be proud of a malignant monster like Chicago. This experience was a turning point in his, in his life, transforming him into a political radical and intensifying his hatred of authority. For weeks, he couldn't talk about Chicago without crying. And he saw that the Dems were just as corrupt as the Republicans were evil, and the American political system needed an overhaul. He felt the best way for him to make change was to be on a more local level. So I always say, start locally, work globally. Starting with his home of Aspen, he thought the story of a local campaign could bring back, could bring his life and his book, The Death of the American Dream, into focus. There's a little side note, by that Christmas, Sandy would again be pregnant. Now, he was still writing the occasional magazine article for money when 1969 came around. His Boston Globe friend Bill Cardoso hired him to cover President Nixon's inauguration for Globe magazine, another piece for the American Dream book. He wrote about test pilots at the Sanctuary for the Mad Monks of Flying, Edwards Air Force Base in California High Desert for the pageant. When at the base and not reporting, Hunter retreated to his room at the Hyatt and fell into a drug stupor, stalking his hotel room, looking down on Sunset Strip, popping pills, and staring at his enemy, the typewriter. The article just wasn't coming through. While waiting for Oscar Acosta to pick him up and take him to the airport for his return to Colorado, he ingested mescaline that Acosta had given him. It became a regular part of his drug diet, loving the drug's elongated reality that opened the spaces around him, giving him more room to explore and hide. He finished the test pilot article at home and then wrote to Jim Silberman, quote, One of these days, I'll explain how an allegedly talented writer can produce five pages a day for a solid year and finish with nothing at all. And that's where we will pick up for Hunter S. Thompson, part three. And it's mescaline. I've always heard it called mescaline. Mescaline. Have you heard uh, Blue and Yellow Purple Pills by D12? Oh Yeah, I'm not going to go by what rappers sing in a fucking song. Well, considering that they've used it. I'm sure they have. I have always heard it called mescaline. It's mescaline. Mm. Tomato, potato. What do you think so far? I think dude's really fucked up. <laughs> not not a fan of the uh, wife abuse, the spousal abuse. No, not a fan of the drug abuse. Not a fan of the racial stuff. No. Yeah. Still quite the Kind care. of a fan of the uh, Republican hate, though. <laughs> yeah, the, the political fervor that he has. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. But I guess you can't pick and choose, so. 
yeah, you either got to love them or you got to hate them. So, I don't know. There's a lot more to come. We still got two episodes left, and uh, things are going to continue to get fucked up. Yeah. So, let's uh, get the sh- socials out. We quick. are at OpenAFINGBook on Twitter and Instagram. I am at ECJBAT. I am Young ETAM6 on Twitter, Young ETAM on Instagram. I don't really do anything on either one of them, so if you're looking for me, just go to the Open a Fucking Book Twitter and Instagram accounts. That's where you'll probably find me. Uh, our email is openafingbook at gmail.com. Stephanie, our Goodreads? Goodreads.com backslash book. Yes, you can go to our Patreon, uh, grab some stickers. All your donations go to help this show be better. Patreon.com. Slash open a effing book. Go to my wife's Etsy page, uh, etsy.com slash stuff slash shows slash no, etsy.com slash, slash shop shops slash Stephanie Young Art. Okay, I just have Etsy written down, so I'm doing it all from memory. So I'm sorry. Uh, come back, come back, uh, middle of the week for our weekday cliff notes episodes where we cover our four books of the week and have some news for you. Rate and review us wherever you listen. Uh, Whatever apps you have for podcasts on your phone or on your computer, just pull them all up and rate and review us and subscribe on all of them. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, just everyone that you got, just subscribe to all of them. Uh, Go to your local library, your local bookstore, buy a book from a local independent author from a local independent bookstore. Best thing you can do. Yes, help help out those indie authors. Right. And, Stephanie, I think that's it. I think that is it as well. All right. Well, take care of yourselves. Take care of one another. Between now and the time we get to talk to you again, do yourself a favor. Go open a fucking book. All right. We'll see you. Bye, guys.